Okay, so today we're looking at Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 34, and thank you, Alison, for reading for us today. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some say, what does this babbler want to say? Others say, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now in Athens and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does he not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needs, needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the world, the whole earth. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live. So that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him through indeed he is not for, far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the arts and imagination of mortals. While God was overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all the people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by rising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. 
at that point, Paul left them. So we're getting to the pointy end of, of our journey through the book of Acts. And what a journey. Do you, do you kind of feel like you've actually literally uh, walked from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth? Hey, but it's been a good walk, hasn't it? And, and we're almost... We're almost at the end, and, and, and we're seeing, as, as we get to the end of Acts, we're seeing the gospel indeed starting to spread to the very ends of the earth. Last week, we had uh, the Gentiles coming to faith, and, and really, the rest of the book of Acts is, is centred around Paul and his missionary journeys. And the question we're going to think about today is, how does Paul engage with culture in an effective way? And isn't that the million-dollar question for us today? How do we engage with culture in a way that's effective? I think there's often three different ways uh, believers, Christians, do it. And if you've been part of our apologetics course on a Tuesday, uh, some of these things I'm going to say to you today will sound a little bit familiar. I've, I've sort of packaged some of, some of our learning and I've, I've kind of applied it to this passage we're looking at. Now, if you haven't had a chance to be part of that Tuesday night course, you don't have to miss out. We've now finished it, but you don't have to miss out. You can actually do your own Tuesday night or any night of the week course on your own with your spouse, with a friend. You just need access to our Right Now Media uh, platform, which anyone can have. If you don't yet have access, talk to me. I'll get you access. And you will find a treasure trove of teaching, kids' videos, adult stuff, Bible studies, archaeological stuff. I mean, you name it, it is there in this, in this, um, on this platform. And, and it, you can uh, have a look at the apology to this course we did, which was by Chad Ragsdale, all right? And he's got some really incredibly insightful and helpful things for us to think about as we, as Christians, the church, engage with our world and, and as we take hold of that mission that we've been called for, which is to see, uh, to, to see God's, um, God's story, God's kingdom, uh, to, to uh, be filled with the power of the Spirit and to bring the message of Jesus from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So today... There are three different ways we often, as believers, engage with culture. Way number one, we get aggressive. We kind of fight against culture. You know, it's evil, it's bad, it's wrong, and we're going to fight against it. We're going to call it out. Okay? We're going to fight it. The second way sometimes believers uh, go for is to be accommodating of culture. We kind of go, you know what, we've got to blend into culture. And so we start to think like culture, we start to act like culture, and pretty soon, pretty soon we are the same as culture. So we're accommodating of culture. The third way we often choose is to isolate ourselves. That's where we separate ourselves from culture. That stuff out there that's worldly, it's wrong. I might get polluted or corrupted by it, so I'm going to make sure I stay well away from that culture out there, all right? And I think as you've probably already gathered, each option on their own doesn't really enable us to com complete the mission we've been given, does it? Uh, it doesn't enable us to be witnesses 
the good news of Jesus, if we're aggressively fighting culture or if we're blending in and accommodating it or if we're isolating and separating ourselves from it. What we're going to do today is we're actually going to go kind of more or less verse by verse through this passage that we've just read from Acts chapter 17 from verse 16. And, and look, that might sound boring to some of you. To some of you, that will sound really exciting. Uh, verse by verse, we're going to kind of like just pull it to bits and we're going to go through it. And, and I, had, I had a lot of fun writing this sermon, I'm not going to lie. Um, I hope you have as much fun dissecting this passage as I did. Anyway, let's get into it, enough of that. All right, so we're going to see Paul and he responds to culture kind of in a, in a, um, uh, a combination of actually all three of these things. All right, it's quite interesting what we see in this passage. And we're going to see how he's able to remain both separate and distinct from culture um, and, and take a stand against parts of culture that are not of God's truth or God's word or God's ways. But we're going to also see how he engages with culture. And so he seeks to understand culture and mixes with the people in the city of Athens uh, that, that, that he's ministering to. And, and he actually even uses aspects of culture when he's preaching the gospel. And really, this is the only way we're going to be effective as, as Christians, as the church, in our mission and witness. The only way uh, that the good news about Jesus can spread is if we engage with our culture in a similar way to Paul. So let's get into it. It would be really helpful if you follow along in your, in your Bibles or on a phone app if you, if you have one of those. So let's start at verse seven, uh, 16. Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them uh, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, I want you to imagine Paul walking through the city and he's visiting various places, interacting with people. He's doing a bit of shopping in the marketplace, talking to people in the marketplace. Uh, he goes and sees some of the various temples, the various gods and idols that are, are, are in those temples. And his heart is stirred. His heart gets kind of angry, but, but angry in a good way because he, he sees how far culture is uh, from God. He sees that it's, a, it's an idolatrous culture, it's, it's pagan. And now at this point, Paul could disengage. He could step back and he could say, whoa, whoa, so much ungodliness here. Like, I don't want to get led astray. I don't want to be made impure by all this idolatry out there. You know, I might catch a demon or I might defile myself in some way. And so he could have taken the isolate option, couldn't have he? But he doesn't. He doesn't. He, he instead chooses to engage with culture. And in verse 17, if you're following along, you'll see that he, he starts to, to reason with the people. He starts to talk with them. And he goes to the synagogues and the marketplace. He talks to Jews. He talks to Greeks. He talks to whoever happens to be there. He's not picky. He didn't just talk to those he felt more culturally comfortable with, like the Jews. Talk to anyone, talk to everyone, including, verse 18, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, anyone here happen to be an uh, expert on 
Epicurean philosophy and culture? Stoic philosophy and culture? No? You would be if you listened to N.T. Wright just quietly. But anyway, that's another story. Um, so let me tell you a bit about them. Um, Epicureans believed that there were gods, all right? So, yep, there are gods, but they believed that these gods were uninterested in people, uninvolved in daily life. Um, and they believed that at death, people don't actually have a soul that survives. So they didn't believe in some sort of afterlife uh, existence or some sort of alternative body that the soul might get deposited in. They believed that good and evil were measured by whether something was um, good, if it felt pleasant, something was good if it felt pleasant, um, something was good if it was kind of enjoyable to them. Good and evil, therefore, weren't absolute. So there's no definite good or evil. Good and evil were sort of a subjective thing based on your experience. So pleasure, good. Pain, bad. Anyone seeing any overlaps with our culture here? Hey? Yeah. The Stoics, on the other hand, saw absolutely everything as divine. So, so where the Epicureans went, yeah, there's God, but he's really far away. He doesn't actually have much to do with our daily life. He's kind of just gone out there. The Stoics, on the other hand, thought that everything was divine. So this is your classic um, uh, pantheistic worldview for those that, that might maybe are familiar with that, that, um, that line. So everything in the world is God. So they, they basically just thought that all the different gods that were worshipped are just different manifestations of the one divine force that permeates all of culture. Um, so it's kind of like everything in the universe is God rather than everything is created by God. Do you see the difference there? Yeah. Stoics aim for cultural, moral enlightenment. They want to be well-formed people. They want to be wise people. They want to have good mastery over themselves. They would have really loved self-help books in our society, wouldn't they? Uh, they love living in harmony with nature. Again, are you seeing any overlaps with our culture? Hey? Paul is distressed by what he sees. And he's provoked to action. And so he starts speaking up Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? What's this babbler on about? They're not impressed with Paul's preaching. And they call him a babbler. Now, this is an interesting word, babbler. It literally means an idea picker. Have you ever been called an idea picker? Ah, you idea picker. <laughs> Um, or it could mean scavenger, in the sense of birds scavenging for seed in the fields. Um, or, all right, this is interesting, men lounging around in the marketplace and uh, waiting for stuff to fall off the back of carts, merchandise to fall off the back of carts, and they would run and pick it up. They would scavenge the stuff that fell off the back of a cart. All right? So, so this is the word. This is what they're calling Paul. And it's... It's an insult, all right? It's an insult. They're saying, you haven't thought this through, Paul. You're just randomly picking up new ideas wherever they've fallen, ideas that don't belong to you, just useless scraps of information. This is empty, meaningless talk that you don't understand and there is no substance to what you're saying. And so we have these intellectuals, these smart people looking down on Paul, calling him ignorant, 
you can relate to Paul. I mean, there's often intellectuals in our culture, isn't there? Looking down on the Christian faith as being intellectually shallow or backward. It doesn't feel nice, does it? And so they take Paul to the Areopagus, oh, I practiced that word, Areopagus, um, which is basically the highest court. This is verse 19, the highest court in the land, uh, in, the, in the city. And they, they wanted him to explain himself. Now, the context here, I, I think sometimes when we read it, the context sounds friendly. The context is not friendly. It, it's not sort of like, we like what you're saying, Paul. Tell us a little bit more. It's, it's rather, you are upsetting our rule and order by bringing foreign deities and unsettling new ideas to our people Explain yourself, Paul. Now, think about our three points. At this point, Paul could have easily pulled back and just accommodated their culture and their ways. Could have kept himself out of trouble by just affirming what they do, what they think, what they worship. Yep, it's all good, folks not trying to cause any trouble. I have my God, you have your God. It's all right, we can all believe whatever we like. Doesn't matter, truth is relative, yada, yada, yada. So he could have accommodated their culture. Um, but in doing so, he, he would have lost the distinctiveness of the gospel message, wouldn't he? he, he he'd be involved in culture, but not distinct and, and, and beautifully uh, standing out from it. His other option, accommodating culture, his other option would have been the aggressive option. He could have ramped things up a notch and kind of gone on the attack. And he could have attacked their values, the way they see the world. He could pull apart every idea they, they hold and slam them for it. And, and so he'd be very distinct and separate from culture, wouldn't he? But, but um, how much ability would he have to witness and share the love of Jesus with people? I reckon a big fat zero, yeah? What does Paul do? Because what Paul does here, I'm just strongly suggesting we should probably do when we interact with friends, family, co-workers, culture, all right? So take note of what Paul does here. It's good. It's clever. Verse 22. People of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious, for as I walked about and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant about the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So here is Paul's apologetics top tip number one. Are you ready? If you're making notes, this is number one. All right. Paul is reading culture. All right. This is the first thing we need to do. We need to read culture. Paul's already taken the time to understand the culture he's in, hasn't he? He's already walked around the city. He's already looked carefully, noticed what they do. He's had conversations with people. Do you ever do that? Do you ever just walk around and notice people, have conversations with people, find out what makes them tick, what they value? Um, he, he does this. He goes to the synagogues. He goes to the marketplaces. And he's actually now able to understand what they value, what's important to them. So we get to read on culture. And do you know what they value? They value worship. They value religion. 
and they value the supernatural world. And I tell you what, this, this is a great way to start a conversation about your faith. I can see that these things are important to you. Imagine you're at work or down the street at the shops and, and someone starts talking about faith or spiritual things and you can say, hey, yeah, I can see that, that these things are important to you. What a great way to start a conversation because it communicates value for people. It, it, it communicates that we get them. And you know what? When people feel valued and understood, they're more likely to listen, aren't they? I mean, that's, that's you, isn't it? When you feel valued and understood, you're more likely to listen to someone, don't you? Getting a read on culture also helps us to present the gospel in a way that's relevant to people or in a way that speaks to people's interests or to people's fears. We can answer the questions people have about their life by showing them how the gospel is able to meet those questions and, and meet their needs. All right, so that's apologetics top tip number one, reading culture. Paul's top tip number two would be finding common ground finding common ground. So Paul starts here his conversation with what they already believe. He says, you're worshipping a God you don't know. Let, let me tell you about him. And then he launches into a speech about God being the creator of the world and all things and that he gives all life. And do you know what he does? He even quotes their own philosophers. Uh, verse 28, you have a look at that. He, he actually quotes their own philosophers. What a clever way of starting in this conversation a point that everyone can, um, can agree on. All right, so find common ground. Starting on common ground, it's, it's a little bit like, if you imagine you're trying to enter a house and you find an unlocked door or even an open door and, and so you enter the house through that unlocked open door. That's quite an easy way, isn't it, of entering a house. It's a lot easier than... than um, and a lot less violent than grabbing a sledgehammer and banging a hole in the wall, isn't it? Far more successful just to walk through the unlocked door, yes? And so this is what Paul's doing here. He's finding the open door. He's finding the common ground. He's not just sort of banging a hole in the wall to, to sort of jump in and, and, and start this conversation on, on faith. And when I have conversations with people, I really like to try and find the common ground with them. Do you do that? Do you try and find common ground with the people you talk to? Uh, it's far more successful because it doesn't become a battle, does it? It doesn't become this adversarial thing. You know, there's usually something you can agree on, isn't there? And, and we can use that agreement or that place of, of starting point of truth, as a, uh, that starting point to sort of steer the conversation Towards, towards truth. And by doing this, Paul and we are able to accommodate culture, but, but we're also able to use this accommodation as a springboard. So we don't stay in that place of accommodating culture, but we can use it as a springboard to go on and challenge culture in a way that is effective rather than aggressive. Tip number three, we can identify foundational differences. If you have a quick glance there at, at verse 24 through to 27, uh, Paul is basically saying, folks, let's get this straight. God made the world 
And so he's the rightful king and ruler of that world. And he's greater than humanity. He is over and above all of us. And he's the source of life. And God has planned out your life in intimate detail. And he wants you to seek him and he wants you to know him. And that right there, by the way, is, is, is a, a wonderful summary of the gospel. God made you. God loves you. God rules over you. God has a plan for your life. God is the source of your life. And he wants you to seek him and know him. Right there, Gospel 101. And, and, and Paul goes on to, to point out a key difference in their worldview. So he's identifying these, these foundational differences And he points out this this key difference. So the key difference is the way they think about themselves in the world versus what God's reality is. Now think about this. Remember, many of them were these Stoics. They would have believed that plants, animals, people were just a unified expression of God. They would have said creation is God. The Epicureans amongst them would have believed that God was distant and far removed from his creation and so not involved at all in the day-to-day rule of his people and the world. And so you can see there's this big difference in the worldview, in the foundation of their thinking and the gospel foundation. And so Paul points that out. He says, "Uh, uh, uh, God actually made creation Creation is not a God that you worship. God made creation. And he goes on to say, God rightfully wants a say in how you live your life. He's up close and personal. He's not a a distant, far-removed God. He's here with us and he wants a say in how you live your life. And, And really nothing else will make sense for these people if Paul doesn't first point out the essential differences between a gospel worldview and the worldview of the people of Athens. And, and I think for us today, when I, when I think about some of the current cultural issues that are quite emotive and a little bit touchy in our society, and they're often issues that um, Christians would try and, and persuade culture to think differently about. So think about things like uh, gay marriage, gender ideology, euthanasia, abortion, all, all of those, those very emotive, hot topic issues that, that often Christians get very involved in trying to persuade our culture to, to, to think differently about. The thing is we, we kind of, we argue about the icing that's on the cake, but we forget that it's stuck to the cake underneath. So we're arguing about the icing, but we forget about the cake that it's stuck to. Because uh, beneath each of these cultural hot topic issues is a, is a whole world view that's underneath. There, there's huge foundational differences in how people think about human society. And so if you don't have a Christian foundation or a Christian worldview, but are being told to think like a Christian on these topics, it's just not going to work, is it? And and I think, in my opinion, instead of arguing with people about gay marriage or gender ideology, which, you know, they're important topics, but but instead of arguing those, we'd we'd be better off to first trying to persuade people of the truth that God is your creator and that he actually, as your creator, has some very essential insights 
into you and into us and into how human society is going to flourish and work best. If we can start there, we've then got a good foundation, we've got a good cake to then maybe change some of the icing that's stuck to it. All right. Number four, top tip number four from Paul, focus on the essential truths. Paul knows this, and it's important that we, we stay focused on this. Our faith is grounded in a person, not a philosophy. He doesn't try and argue against every last detail of their religions and their philosophies. He points people to the big key truths about the gospel. And the two big key truths that we need to point to people, uh, point people to is this, God made you and he's the one who gives you life and as such he's your rightful ruler. You'll see him doing that in verse 24 to 26. And then the second key big truth is, is Jesus and the resurrection. And you'll see him talk about that. You'll see that referred to in 18, verse 31, verse 32. Talks about, uh, there's references to Jesus or the resurrection. Now, it's tempting. It's tempting. When we are talking about our faith, uh, where it's tempting to be passionate and maybe a bit argumentative about the theologies or the social issues that we hold dear and true. But we need to realise not all of them are deal breakers when it comes to salvation. I, I was reflecting on this point and, and thinking back to the thick of COVID. I don't know if any of you, were, were you online on Facebook? Were you using Facebook during COVID? Oh. <laughs> um, there was a lot of online commenting and posting, wasn't there? from Christians, all right, about a lot of things. But, but I saw a lot of online posting about, about the tribulation. Now, this is in the Facebook environment, which is the Chris, Christian witness to the wider world, isn't it? This, this is not like debating with your small group buddy in, in the lounge room of your house. And, and you know what? From reading some of those Facebook posts, you would think that to be a Christian meant... It was all about believing in the tribulation. And no one ever really explained what the tribulation was. And I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, and I'd get confused. I'd be like, what is this tribulation that everyone's talking about? The only thing they're telling me is that I, I must prepare for it. They were, they were quite earnestly aggressive posts. And honestly, they really didn't give our Christian witness really any credibility. And so what I want to say is don't get sidetracked arguing the side issues, the emotive issues, the things that might be important but are just not important to know first. Okay? The things that are important but they're just not important to know first. Stay focused on the essentials that God made us, He's our rightful and just ruler and Jesus plus the resurrection. They're the essentials we need to just get in our tool belt. All right. Top tip number five, present a rational argument, please. Paul gives quite a rational reason for his faith in a very coherent and logical way. He doesn't just say, well, just have faith. You just have to believe. 
Just experience him. Then you'll understand what it's all about. You've just got, to, just got to feel the presence of God in your life. Come to church and experience the Holy Spirit and then you'll, then you'll know what the gospel is. Then you'll get it. I can think of some people that I've journeyed with in our, over the years here at Cersei Coleman and uh, that I've previously journeyed with. And, and both of these people I'm thinking about have had noticeable uh, experiences Encounters with the Holy Spirit and with God. Noticeable. They commented on it. Whoa! That was God! I think one of them even at a particular meeting on the floor. So significant encounters with the, the supernatural aspect of God. But neither of them have taken hold of the gospel message. And uh, uh, neither of them have, have received Jesus as their, their king, as their saviour. And, and neither of them have continued coming to church because of intellectual hurdles to Christianity that they haven't been able to overcome. And look, there's probably other things going on there too in the spiritual realm and a bit of a lack of a desire to repent possibly. But, but the point is the intellectual side of faith is important to people. We need to be able to present the gospel in a rational, logical way that makes intellectual sense. And we see verse 24 to 31, Paul does this. The Christian faith, it, it is rational. It is logical. It, it can stand up to debate and uh, intellectual inquiry. And, and we need to present it to our culture as such. Because our culture is a little bit like those, um, those philosophers who, who said to Paul, oh, you're just a babbler. That's, that's all too often how the world sees us and our faith. Oh, those religious people. Gosh, they're a bit naive, believing in this random stuff they can't see. No, our faith is credible. It is historically credible. We need to present it to our culture as such. And if you want some help to do that, the apologetics course we've just done with Chad Ragsdale, it can help you do this, right? It's an excellent course. Top tip number six from Paul. I think this is our last top tip. Yes, it is. Um, the need for a response from people. Verse 29 to 31 basically sees Paul saying, you know what, folks? Everyone needs to respond to this message. You need to respond by turning away from your idols. Turn away from those ornaments and turn to God. Paul says, you didn't know any better before and that's okay, God overlooked that. But now you are being shown what is true and right. And so you need to know that the creator God is going to hold you accountable to that. The creator God is, is, is going to judge you one day. He's going to judge the, one, the world one day. People need to know that a response to God, it's, it's required. They actually have a choice or a decision to make. They can either follow him and his ways or they can continue living their own way. People need to know that there's a consequence for that decision. The world will one day be judged in justice by Jesus and you, you can either stand on your own <laughs> under your own righteousness and under your own moral decisions and your own philosophies, you can, you can stand before Jesus with all of those. Or the far better idea is you can stand before him as one who is, who is clothed in his righteousness. 
It's one who's clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, clothed in his way of living and his wisdom. Which one have you chosen? You know, I think what you notice in our society and culture is that people are often kind of vaguely interested in spiritual matters. And they think that one day they're going to get involved with God. One day they, they, they're going to come to church or, you know, they're going to make sure maybe their kids know him, but they avoid it for themselves. We need to tell people that a response is needed because there's no middle ground to faith, is there? C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important, and people need to know this. Of course, people's response to us, it's going to vary, isn't it? Verse 32, we see some people sneer. Some people want to hear more. Verse 34, some people believe. In human society, there'll be a varied uh, responses that people have to us when we share our faith with them. So I think we can really take heart in this, can't we? Like if Paul got this very mixed and slightly underwhelming response, then it's okay if, if you don't see a, a big and dramatic response from people either, isn't it? So our apologetics top tips from, from Paul. Firstly, read culture. Secondly, find common ground. Thirdly, identify foundational differences. Fourth, focus on the essential truths. Five, present a rational argument. Six, there's a need for a response. If we can do these things, we'll be in an awesome position to engage effectively with our culture in a way that's neither aggressive nor accommodating or isolating, but is kind of like this helpful mix of all three that sees us as, as people who are distinct and holy, but also involved and compassionate people in our world. And, and that's how we will be effective in our calling and mission. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, as we, as we come to the end of our, our journey through the book of Acts, our prayer is that, that we, would be, um, we would be taking on these, these essential truths about your heart for this world, about your mission for this world and about our place in that mission and our calling in that mission. So Lord God Almighty, I just pray that by the, the power of your Holy Spirit, you would, you would um, anoint us, uh, fill us, that you would put a fire in our hearts and in our bellies, that we would have a passion and a desire for the gospel, but also a love and a heart for the lost and for the people of this world. Lord, may we just find opportunities to serve one another in, in love and compassion and mercy. But would we also be people who are able to, um, in, a, in, a, in a loving but in a, a, a distinct way, articulate our faith, articulate the truth about Jesus and the resurrection, the truth that you are Lord, that you are King and that you rule this world. Lord, would you give us the words to say? Would you give us the divine appointments to share with people? Lord, would we be a people who are truly um, on mission, on mission in our everyday lives, Lord? And we cannot do that without the Holy Spirit. And so right now we just... Um, yeah, we just lift our hands up to you. Lord, we just want to receive from you the gifts, the heart, the love, the power that is needed to do this. We just lift our hands up to you. 
We just want to receive from you this afternoon, Lord. And where we have been uh, living life our own way and, and where we have maybe been just doing it in our own strength or in our own mindset, Lord, we repent of that. We turn away from that way of living and we turn towards you. We just acknowledge that you are Lord, you are King, you are Saviour of life and we, we surrender to you and we just give you permission to, uh, to, to, to do things that are for your glory in our life. We, we want to live our lives for your glory, Jesus. So we invite you to come and do that. Strengthen us, strengthen your people, strengthen this church, strengthen our witness and our mission to the world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.